Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sedaticato, a psychotherapist and writer sharing stories, experiences, and insights to nourish the feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present and how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance between the archetypal feminine and masculine. On this episode, I'm discussing grief through personal reflections and the philosophies of those we learn from well. Before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. While this information is generalized, it is not inclusive of all experiences and perspectives. In this context, feminine and masculine are used to describe archetypal elements akin to yin and yang and are not descriptive of gender or gender roles. And now without further ado, let's jump into this episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. What I know of grief is deep and complex, and yet it feels like I know nothing about it at all, too. (laughs) After... A recent loss, I grew compelled to share what it is that I do understand of it, which starts with a confrontation of my personal history of grief. So ride this wave with me, if you will. My first encounter with death came when I was five years old and my grandfather passed away. Two years later, while my parents were divorcing and I was experiencing an entirely new kind of grief in response, my uncle passed away after a long battle with AIDS. I visited him many times in the hospital just prior to his death, which was really confusing and overwhelming as a seven-year-old. And yet it also had its purpose in cultivating who I would become. I didn't attend my grandfather's funeral, but I did attend my uncle's. Looking back, I can tell that my very rambunctious behavior at my uncle's wake Not only because I was a seven-year-old, but it was also my way of channeling my anxious and fearful energy about this man that I knew now being in a coffin at the front of the room while my family quietly wept at his loss. It was strange. And tension in the air was as tangible as the flowers, the hugs, and the rows of chairs. And I couldn't stand that I could feel that. I spent a lot of time trying to understand death at that time, probably coming up no more short than the adults around me. (laughs) In part, I think having the imagination of a child allowed me to process my confusion about grief in a special way. I didn't have the need to dominate information like some adults tend to have. So being in the mystery was as overwhelming as it was actually compelling and intriguing and interesting and peaceful. 30 years later, I can't say I know much more about death than I did then, and that's okay. It's honest, at least. My uncle Jerry, who died when I was seven, I would say that we had a complicated relationship. I never felt entirely comfortable around him, and I never entirely knew why. My family would joke about it, and they would have their fun. They would give me objects to give to him so that they could watch me slowly approach him and then panic at the last second and then toss the object at him from a considerable distance and then kind of run away. They found my anxiety entertaining. 
Some people speculated that his beard was intimidating to me because I couldn't see his face. And that kind of seems ridiculous to me, as I knew other men with beards. For a lot of my childhood, my father had a beard, and I was fine with him. Uh, And I happen to be a big fan of artists like Raffi and Bob Ross, who also had beards. You know, it was the late 80s. I think a lot of people had beards. So I don't know why they attributed it to that. As I grew older and I examined my memories of my Uncle Jerry, I think I realized that at least on the conscious surface, my discomfort of him was more about the intensity with which he spoke to me and how he talked to me like I was an adult, even though he never knew me past seven. And in some way, I appreciated that. But I felt pressure talking to him, the way that he seemed to kind of want me to respond a certain way or say a certain thing. It felt like he wanted something from me that I didn't want to give him. And so my instincts were to keep my distance. And I'm sharing this because nearly a decade later, a little less than that, my mother, thinking that I had already known this, which I didn't, She casually mentioned how my Uncle Jerry asked her in the hospital the day before he died, why does Vanessa hate me so much? My stomach dropped when I heard her say that. I had no idea that conversation occurred until that moment. My feelings to avoid him were strong. I know that. I can still feel that. And my suspicion about why, sometimes those suspicions were even stronger. But all I had to go off of were my conscious memories of him and one home video of my third birthday where he is seen trying on my heart-shaped sunglasses and softly but joyfully asking me if I was excited about my party. It's funny, when I I watch that video now, I feel bad for him. I see this this man trying to not alarm me (laughs) and yet... I'm just staring at him. I'm not responding. I'm, I'm almost giving him some sort of a side eye. And I, I don't know what that means still to this day. But I know that I trusted the instincts in my body then, but still never intended to hurt him. Hating him was not the experience that I had. Instead, it was one of discomfort, confusion, certainly, powerlessness. Things that I wasn't responsible for correcting at seven. Seven. Think about being seven. Think about seven-year-olds that you know. Seven-year-olds are not equipped (laughs) to be managing all of that. So I'm glad that I actually trusted my boundaries or set boundaries based on what I was trusting in my own instincts, however confusing that was. Because the other option was people-pleasing, and giving him what he wanted, even though I didn't want to give it to him. And the thing is, at that point, I had unfortunately already known how to people please. So when I look back, I'm glad that I held my my line about that. But to know that someone died thinking that I hated them, that was devastating to me. Approaching the end of your life, I imagine you've got enough to review and reckon with. Feeling hated by your young niece probably shouldn't have to be one of them. And so reconciling this became my mission at this time. I think I was about 15. 
It was then that I pursued an understanding of what happens after we die, as though that's something to simply understand. (laughs) My years growing up Catholic hadn't given me the perspective that I needed or found helpful. Uh, Or maybe a better way of saying that is the Catholic take on life after death left too many questions for me on the human end of things how the stories were told, how dismissive the adults telling the stories were when I had questions about it. I didn't trust that line of belief, yet I wanted to know if there was a way that I could communicate with my uncle and let him know that I didn't hate him. This pursuit of spiritual knowing made me really vulnerable and open-hearted and curious and meek. And that made my next confrontation with grief happening nearly parallel to learning of my uncle's question, significantly more traumatic because my defenses were really low. Growing up in New York and attending high school on Staten Island on September 11th, 2001, brought about a new kind of grief for me. If my parents' divorce revealed the cracks in the impenetrable superheroes I thought them to be as a child... Then September 11th did the same thing for our government leaders at large. I felt safe nowhere. I trusted nothing. I couldn't bear the grief around me, the grief reverberating through me, the magnitude of this event and everything around it, the desperately broken hearts, the yellow air that lingered for months, and the constant sensationalized replaying of my home's skyline falling on TV. Like many people describe earth-shattering grief, I fell asleep the night of September 11th, an entirely new person than I was the night before. Deep depression swept me up, and I slowly withdrew from life entirely. And I maintain to this day that if it was not for Mr. Barrett, my high school creative writing teacher at Tottenville, who, by the way, I've been trying to find him, but... No internet searches are bringing him up. So Mr. Barrett from Tottenville around 2001, if you're listening for some reason, shoot me an email. I maintain that if it wasn't for him, he was my high school creative writing teacher, and he saw me withdrawing, and he encouraged me to write through it. And I think without that, I I don't know how I would have found my way back to myself, to some sense of peace. Mr. Barrett, by the way, a man that I trusted implicitly, despite... Or maybe because (laughs) he revealed being banned from Kmart for stealing socks. He had a beard. So we'll just leave that there. Two years later, my father had what would turn out to be just his first stroke. Lucky to have survived and even relatively recovered. Seeing my tough, strong, can handle anything Italian from Brooklyn father lying helpless in his hospital bed. Hardly able to speak. That confronted me with a fear at 17 that I didn't want to know. My mother's breast cancer scare, the death of my cousin in his 20s, and several more family deaths before my remaining grandparents started to pass. Euthanizing my dog, diagnosed with two types of cancer and kidney disease, after a swift downward turn in her well-being and quality of life, that was another experience that completely rebooted me, created a new version of me as the old version evaporated into a fog of intolerable grief 
sorrow and regret for even things that were beyond my control. And I wish I could stop there, but loss only continued. And the thing about that is it never really gets any easier. Years ago, I had a conversation with an old friend from college who had just then experienced her first, albeit rather traumatic, loss of somebody close to her. But I couldn't believe that people could make it to their mid-twenties before ever having to confront death. In some way, I'm grateful for what grief has taught me. And I think some of the biggest ways that it transformed me happened because I had to confront death at such a young age. But the thing is, as much as I feel like I have learned about it, or through it, rather, I'm not even sure that I can put those lessons to words. They are so palpable within me that it feels impossible to imagine my life without them. And I suppose that's why I call grieving a feminine act. It asks you to experience, feel, imagine, express. When you try to apply masculine logic, straightforwardness, or expiration dates on it, maybe even words, you're going to stifle what's real. In masculine spaces, and as a reminder, I am speaking archetypally, not about gender. Grief has a time limit, at least in terms of how it's allowed to affect a person. We call it bereavement, and your rank among the dead's family members is how your time off from work is determined, because blood relation is the only indicator of pain, apparently. In masculine cultures, even though we know better... We act as if grief is something to eventually get over. We have prescribed these stages of grief to ourselves only in order, as though there is a linear path to, quote, recovery of grief, when in fact it is a chaotic swirl of overcoming those stages only to return to them again and again forever. Perhaps gaining strength and insight and resources along the way but never outgrowing those stages entirely or eradicating them from your life and how you are affected by them. Time does help with grief, but we mistake that for recovery rather than integration and evolution. One estimate I have for why we do this is that in order to keep capital ebbing and flowing, we have created productivity-focused expectations around grief that are simply two-dimensional. And we use the masculine shadow trait of consumption to lull us into a false sense of having dominated a painful, inevitable, overwhelming, terrifying part of life. If we can assert domination, another masculine shadow trait, then we can experience death in a less fearful way, both the loss of those we love and our own eventual death. If we consider how feminine traits of relationship over work, emotion over productivity, things like vulnerability, intimacy, nurturance, and community, those things create discomfort in capitalistic cultures. We call them weak because we fear that they're going to take us out of rhythm. Then we have to understand that the immense love, fear, and sadness that comes from grief cannot easily be tolerated in our culture. So we create parameters. We normalize these two-dimensional expectations. We make it manageable somehow. 
except all we're really doing is repressing what's natural and what needs to be experienced and felt, even if it doesn't make sense on some practical level or some timeline. What would give life the feminine expansion we all crave? Bell Hooks wrote of grief, quote, love is the only force that allows us to hold one another close beyond the grave. That is why knowing how to love each other is also a way of knowing how to die, end quote. Even in religious spaces, we sometimes speak of death as though it hasn't happened because the afterlife is so powerful that our loved ones remain with us now. I believe all of these things are useful and true, but not alone. I believe grief is something you need to become productive again while holding, because you can't let it immobilize you forever. And it might try. But that's not for the sake of capital. Rather, for your own health. A grad school professor of mine once shared the lesson that he gleaned from the death of his father. He had to learn how to walk with a limp. Keep moving, keep walking, but allow the impact of the loss to remain and persevere with a new modification to yourself. But the idea of grief is something that ends, something to complete, something to get over. That is in line with the masculine illusion of dominance, of conquering, of finalizing. And it's just incorrect. Grief never ends. Grief constantly evolves. Grief one moment can feel like a hollow pit in your chest that will never be filled again, and the next moment might feel like an overflow of love and gratitude. Grief will sometimes feel dead and hopeless, and other times it will feel pregnant with endless possibility for meaning and creation. Grief will feel fine sometimes, and then you will be knocked off your feet with a memory of someone and what seems like the brand new realization that you will never see them again, even though you thought you already came to terms with that months ago. Grief will give you a portal to spiritual dimensions and will also make the mundane of your human existence swing between all important and entirely useless. And when new grief is experienced, old grief resurfaces. You can't lose someone without all of your other losses returning at once to your nervous system. It does not end. But it is not all terrible. I'm grateful that it doesn't end, because as Andrew Garfield said after the passing of his mother, his grief is all of his unexpressed love. In an interview with Stephen Colbert, he said, quote, we never get enough time with each other, so I hope this grief stays with me, because it's all of the unexpressed love that I didn't get to tell her, and I told her every day. We all told her every day. She was the best of us, end quote. He began that reflection in that interview by saying he loves talking about this. So if he cries, it's only a beautiful thing. I resonated so deeply with that disclaimer that crying doesn't need to be avoided or feared, managed or suppressed. In fact, it's an expression of something deeply meaningful, something words can never fully encapsulate. And in part, I think that's what he meant by saying he told his mother every day that he loved her. And yet he still holds so much unexpressed love for her in his grief, not only because that love is ongoing and she is no longer around to tell in the same way, but because even telling someone that we love them doesn't do our love justice. We can say I love you every day and show that love 
and how we arrive to that relationship. And there's still always something in how we experience that love that can't fully be expressed. Grief amplifies that. And it's as painful as it is a marvel of our capacity to feel and experience and care for the people in our lives. And the part about religious spaces denying death in some sense by bypassing the human experience and jumping to the spiritual one. Not all religious or spiritual groups do this. Perhaps I am recalling back again to my Catholic youth or Christian services, one in particular that I recently experienced in which the Reverend adamantly admonished use of the term death because it wasn't a death at all if there was any kind of transcendence involved. And here's the thing, I believe in the transcendence. Even if I've not ever quite settled on one religion's or spiritual group's definition of what that means or how it occurs, I absolutely believe death marks a beginning as much as it marks an end. But marking a beginning doesn't diminish that there has been an ending. The ending isn't something to avoid or deny the reality of. It's to hold in contrast with the beginning. When someone dies, their physical experience and our physical relationship with them dies. We are saddened by this. We ache about this as humans who remain on earth for now because the physical experience of our humanity has so much value to us here in this form. Being able to hold someone, call them on the phone and exchange words with our unique voices, getting advice from somebody who's integrated into your human life, crying on someone's shoulders, looking into their eyes. These types of sensory experiences and more are all of the things that cease to exist when a physical death occurs. And we have to honor this, even if we also believe that we can still communicate with them and experience them in their afterlife. But what is the act of mourning and how are we consciously and unconsciously moving around in it? In Mourning and Melancholia, Freud writes that, quote, mourning is regularly the reaction to loss of a loved person or to the loss of some abstraction, which has taken the place of one, such as one's country, liberty, an ideal, and so on. In some people, the same influences produce melancholia instead of mourning, and we consequently suspect them of a pathological disposition. It is also well worth notice that although mourning involves grave departures from the normal attitude to life, it never occurs to us to regard it as a pathological condition and to refer it to medical treatment. We rely on its being overcome after a certain lapse of time and we look upon any interference with it as useless or even harmful. And this brings me to something Carl Jung has said about grief and an unexperienced grief more specifically, which I fear happens all too often. As a therapist and as a depressed person, as a lapsed Catholic, <laughs> as someone who works with clients in great suffering, I see all too often the suppression of grief in some form or another. 
either in service to the masculine capital, avoidance of pain, not being able to identify grief and process it in its right place, spiritual beliefs that see grieving human endings as a threat to their faith of what everlasting thing comes next, or pathologizing it because they feel like it's not supposed to be happening. Young believed that unprocessed grief, not feeling safe, willing, equipped, or modeled to do so, that is where suffering grows. Nancy McWilliams, author of a book that I recommend to every clinician I know, Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, she expands on this, saying of depressive patients that there has been an early loss in that person's life that was left unprocessed. And here is where I would like to broaden the idea of grief from physical death into other types of death and loss. Grief happens, like most things, on a spectrum, or maybe in some more chaotic swirl of things. The death of a loved one is a big experience of grief, and yet smaller experiences of grief, especially if left unnamed and unprocessed, can lead to immense suffering and can make it harder to confront those larger experiences of grief when they occur. We can put our losses in their right places, acknowledging their different significance to us, while still understanding the universal needs and experiences of grief. McWilliam shares, quote, The striking effective correspondences between depression and mourning have prompted theorists, at least as far back as Freud, to look for the origins of dystymic dynamics in painful, premature experiences of separation from a love object. She says, early loss is not always concrete, observable, and empirically verifiable, example, the death of a parent. It may be more internal and psychological, as is the case of a child who yields to pressure to renounce dependent behaviors before he, he or she is emotionally ready to do so, end quote. So here, a grief experienced can be as simple as a mother weaning the baby sooner than the baby is ready. And while that may seem like par for the course for parenting from an adult perspective, from the dependent baby's perspective, this loss is tremendous. As children get older and experience additional like losses in their verbal stages, but never have those losses named as grief, or are disallowed from expressing emotion about those losses, because maybe they're being pathologized, they become conditioned to repress the grief rather than experience it and process through it, gain an understanding of their emotions, and engage with them effectively or meaningfully. Instead, especially for some people, they manifest as depression. I bring this up not to create a competition among losses. And I pause because the fact that I even need to make that distinction speaks more perhaps about my own depressed personality, anticipating that my words here might be taken out of context by somebody grieving the death of a loved one and resenting being put in the same category. But there is so much value in me bringing this to the conversation, which is to say, if all grief is tied together by some thread, then early unconscious and or unprocessed grief is likely to arise when a new grief emerges later in life. And it may make the grieving process way more overwhelming than it would be without it. Because that unprocessed grief will seem like a threat. It will seem like a threat to the self that is grieving now. It will seem like a threat to our well-being. Because we have learned that it is grief that we cannot tolerate. But we can. 
as adults with the support of therapists and knowledge, support systems and consciousness and our own agency and tools that we did not have when we were babies and in younger stages of our lives. We can resource ourselves to find that grief tolerable now in a way that our younger selves never could. And that's an incredibly important distinction that we need to reinforce in our own nervous systems. I believe that it is our duty in adulthood to acknowledge the wounded inner children locked away in our nervous systems, rather than holding back their intense emotions, pushing them down into the pit of us and calling it depression or some other kind of angst. And to them we can say, whether it was not having my needs attuned to by my caregiver as a child, whether it was losing a love object without having that pain named and normalized for me, whether it was having to become independent sooner than I was prepared for, whether it was having to be strong for the adults around me and never fully feeling through the grief of a parent's divorce or an early family death, it is valid, it is safe, and we can feel it now. As adults more equipped to name and express our emotions, we can unlock the cabinets that they have been stuffed away into in our bodies and let them be held and understood and known and experienced, validated, loved, cried out, hugged out, exercised out, not out of our bodies forever, but out of those locked cabinets so that we can hold them as grief is intended to be held. There is a difference between holding something in your hands and saying, here it is, it's mine, I see it and you see it too, and it's okay that it's here, and holding something behind your back saying, what? I'm not holding anything, there's nothing back there, what are you looking for? Your whole life will unconsciously and maybe even consciously be in service to hiding what is behind your back from both yourself and the people closest to you. It will create a withdrawal from relationship. It will create anger when people get too close. It will create a mania when it threatens to confront you and you need some frantic way to distract from it. It will take you away from the most precious emotions you can experience, like joy and love and peace. It will numb you. It will depress you. It will prevent you from making meaning of your life. Grief doesn't go away, but it becomes a part of us. It informs us. It reminds us of how capable of love we are. It validates the very normal pain of losing someone or something too soon. It invites us to grow and evolve and show up more alive and authentically in relationships, to not take time for granted, to be in the moment and love what is here now, to remember who and what molded us into who we are now. Grief is meant to be held. But out in the open, where at least you can be in relationship with it, rather than stuffed away like something to feel shame about or avoid entirely. If you can't do that, you will not only suffer in your day-to-day -day life, taking on a more depressive or distractible manic or defended and angry fence protecting you from it. You will also have a hard time with the bigger experiences of grief. And grief unfelt tends to hurt more than grief felt. Through this grief, we can also learn more about our personal attachments, which can take us into deeper work about our relationship patterns, our fears, what we guard ourselves against with our partners, 
what unmet needs we expect will remain unmet, and how we may treat others in response, how you generally express yourself and censor yourself. There's a rich well of insight to glean from understanding and expressing grief. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, grief comes in all ways. We can anticipate grief, which is something I've been holding for some time now as my aunt battles cancer. We can grieve people sitting right in front of us. I've worked with clients who feel a recurrent loss of their parents whenever their parent drinks or re-engages with their addiction. People know when their relationship has been abandoned for a relationship with a substance, and they will grieve. I've worked with clients who, as the oldest children in a blended family, felt replaced by their younger siblings, all the while losing their parents who sit right before them. I've worked with clients who've had miscarriages. I've worked with clients who have been cheated on in their marriage. There are all sorts of ways to experience grief. So what else might be in the process of avoiding grief and death? Perhaps it's a fear of our own mortality. That when we feel grief, we are acknowledging the inevitable in life, which is that it doesn't last forever. And what does that mean about us? The poet, Raina Maria Rilke, uh, he has a lot of books where he, where, where letters that he's exchanged with other people have been published. And I can't remember if this one is from The Dark Interval or if this one is from Letters to a Young Poet, but in a letter to Mimi Romanelli, who was the younger sister of the Italian art dealer Pietro Romanelli. And in 1907, Rolka stayed at her family's small hotel in Venice, and they had a brief romantic relationship and then maintained a long correspondence thereafter. But shortly after his stay in Venice, he sent her this letter. Quote, there is death in life, and it astonishes me that we pretend to ignore this. Death, whose unforgiving presence we experience with each change we survive, because we must learn to die slowly. We must learn to die. That is all of life. To prepare gradually the masterpiece of a proud and supreme death, of a death where chance plays no part, of a well-made, beatific, and enthusiastic death of the kind the saints knew to shape, of a long-ripened death that effaces its hateful name and is nothing but a gesture that returns those laws to the anonymous universe which have been recognized and rescued over the course of an intensely accomplished life. It is this idea of death which has developed inside of me since childhood from one painful experience to the next and which compels me to humbly endure the small death so that I may become worthy of the one which wants us to be great. It is still always that death which continues inside of me, which works in me, which transforms my heart, which deepens the red of my blood, which weighs down the life that had been ours so that it may become a bittersweet drop coursing through my veins and penetrating everything, and which ought to be mine forever. And while I am completely engulfed in my sadness, I am happy to sense that you exist, beautiful. I am happy to have flung myself without fear into your beauty, just as a bird flings itself into space. I am happy, dear, to have walked with steady faith on the waters of our uncertainty all the way to that island which is your heart, and where pain blossoms. 
finally happy, end quote. (laughs) I smile and am on the verge of tears as I read that out loud, (laughs) knowing the, the impact that Rilke has had on me throughout my life and knowing the impact that grief has had on my life for maybe as long as it had on his, um, I can feel all of the emotions as I read those words. More from Rilke in another letter to Adelheid van der Marwitz. This one was shared in the dark interval. Rilke says, Death, especially the most completely felt and experienced death, has never remained an obstacle to life for a surviving individual because its innermost essence is not contrary to us, as one may occasionally surmise but it is more knowing about life than we are in our most vital moments, end quote. Okay, so this is my last quote from Rilke on death. Um, He says, quote, through love and through death, our innate ability to transform the loss of control is activated to bring forth a deeper awareness of life, end quote. That one really struck me um, in in its simplicity and its call out for The loss of control. I know that that's something that I've talked about here on the podcast in terms of both the feminine shadow and the masculine shadow. They both have traits that are either in a response to losing control or an effort to not lose control. And what we realize is that if we're in the shadow and either one of those things, then things are not going well. We are not pulling from the light. We are not acting in service really to the truth of what's before us and and what's in the moment with us, which is that there's a lot that we don't have control over. And the more that we try to assert control, dominate control, manipulate control, or lament the lack of control that we have, the less we are living, the less we are present in the moment and in our relationships, and maybe even putting that energy toward the things that we can actually make an impact on. And I mean, there's so much that we can talk about in terms of what he said in the earlier quote, which is life and death are not separate from each other. And I think the thing that I struggle with masculine dominated cultures, which are all about dominance and consumption and and where addiction can kind of grow from, it's because we're trying so hard to avoid that we are headed toward our own death. We just are. And... We can hold the tension between that being a really sad thing and maybe a really beautiful and important thing because without death, we wouldn't value life. I think we all have experiences that we can pull from that help us understand that when something is finite, we tend to know how to value it more, how to treat it a little bit better. If it goes on forever, we're going to take it for granted. And so how do we reckon with our own death? How do we reckon that It is inevitable and it is scary and it is sad and it is beautiful and it is important. And how do we notice that there are so many things that we do in our day-to-day life that are us trying to control that, that are us trying to avoid that? (laughs) And how when grief arrives for us, we're like, no, 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 no. I can't take an even more explicit confrontation of this truth. So I don't want to feel it. Because if I feel it, it, it becomes real. Or if I feel it, then I, then I have to actually be here for it rather than distract myself or avoid it. We don't talk about death 
very effectively in in Western cultures, perhaps I'd say, either in terms of preparing for death, ritualizing death. We talk about death like it's, oh no, we can't, they passed away. We can't say they died, right? We can't, you know, if you try to have a conversation with somebody about what kind of death do you want to have? What do you want to happen after you die? People get really freaked out about that sort of thing. I have a a dear friend of mine who is also a therapist and she's been working in grief counseling for a while and wanting to become a death doula. And she had started to put together this program where I got to be kind of a guinea pig for. But it is about kind of asking both very practical questions about death and, and filling out some medical forms about you know, in your, in your best guess, because of course we won't know until we're there, but in your best guess, what, what would you want to happen? What kind of machines do you want supporting your life or not? How should your medical decisions be made? Who will be making those decisions and, and those sorts of things. But then also like, how do you want to be remembered? What day do you want people to, you know, remember you and kind of create an anniversary out of for you? What do you want your either your celebration of life or your funeral, your wake, you know, whatever comes after that? What do you want that ceremony to look like? How can you participate in the creation of it so that it's authentically you? And and let me tell you, I, I did that and it was I had to confront a lot of things. I, I actually want to do it again. I, I sort of want to go for a round two um, because I think. I had a lot of barriers the first round, even though I'm pretty open to death. I still am scared of it. I'm a human and I'm an, a part of this culture and all of these things. And I think it's really, really, really rich work. It puts things in a perspective in a beautiful way. And it, it helps me learn about what I value and what I prioritize while I'm here on earth. How I see myself, how maybe I wish other people saw me and would like for them to see me if if no other time than in my death. But why wait until then, you know, and it's moving, it's powerful. And it gave me a little bit of a sense of peace of mind. And maybe that's a control piece, right? Maybe part of the fear of death is all of the things that we won't be able to control about it. And so if we can get a little bit of a head start and and put some things down on paper, then if we worry about being a burden to other people in our death or other people misrepresenting us or making the wrong decisions for us, maybe we get a little peace of mind and say, well, I've done my best to sort of clarify my intentions there. I think it's really important work. Not a lot of people want to do it because it does ask you to confront things that we have really been trained and conditioned to avoid, to pretend isn't happening. After experiencing the recent loss of my dear friend and mentor, Bruce Avery. I found myself confronting grief again recently, this month. And so all of my grief arose in me. But I found myself in a new relationship with it this time. Permitting all of the feelings. I found myself falling deeper in love with the people around me, my own creativity, my purpose while I'm still here on earth. In part, that was the influence that Bruce had on my life while he was still alive. I met him during my undergrad days when I was a confused business major (laughs) trying to figure out how I was supposed to be making career decisions for the rest of my life with no life experience whatsoever (laughs) at 17 and 18 years old. He gave me a new outlet through my college radio station. And with his leadership, his ability to spot and cultivate talent, 
his impressive ability to hold both the, the structure and the boundaries of the masculine and the sentiment and the nurturing of the feminine. I transformed before both of our eyes. And he transformed before mine too. I got to see him really lean into his vulnerability in a beautiful and meaningful way, which I'm grateful to have had the honor of. Years later, when I decided to pivot to psychology and become a therapist, Bruce was one of my biggest cheerleaders. And he offered so much support in so many different ways, from personal to professional. And he used his vulnerability as a way to lead, not used it in a sort of manipulative way, but utilized it as a, as a tool. It wasn't something that he was afraid of. He understood that leadership is stronger with that sort of honesty and the ability to cultivate relationships through it, to model those sorts of things. And that was such a rare sighting for me, especially then when we first met in New York. And for the rest of his life, he acted as a guide, not in the sense that I ought to have followed his path, but by watching him follow his and benefiting from his mentorship, my own path could become clearer. And my resilience to stay on that path just felt like it was infinitely encouraged. Losing him has been hard. It's been a few weeks, and I still find myself breaking into tears in unexpected moments when the gravity in my chest drops out and I remember I can't call him to say hi anymore. Similarly to confronting any kind of loss of parents, whether it's actually them dying or being gone in some literal sense or just them losing some functioning, losing some capacity, not being available in the way that we needed them when we were younger, but maybe don't need them anymore. But that's the confrontation, right? Is it's, I find myself wondering because Bruce was like a parent figure to me in so many ways without him there to sort of reach out to, to sort of check myself with, to kind of, you know, have those conversations where he could put things into perspective in a way that I couldn't. And because I trusted him so much, that was so valuable to me. I find myself wondering if I'm prepared to move through life with my parents and parent figures no longer there buffering things for me. In this particular grief process, I found two podcast episodes, one of them recommended by a friend, which are strangely similar in how they discuss grief, actually, which was interesting. More specifically, the meaning to be made from grief. Now, it's important to note that making meaning of grief isn't meant to circumvent the pain, the anger, the tragedy of it all. We don't need to make meaning of the loss itself, per se, for that maybe isn't ours to make meaning of. But we can make meaning in what we allow the loss to transform in us, what we create, how we let it inform our love and life thereafter. I had intended to visit Bruce last month in December, around Christmas time, when I visited New York. And as it ever does, the holidays became really overwhelming. And I experienced another family emergency while I was out there, so I spent some time in the hospital. And in the end, visiting Bruce wasn't something that came to be. And I decided that I would make a specific trip to see him this spring so that we would have more time and not feel rushed with holidays and other things. But he passed away before I could do that. And I realized that I took time for granted. I knew that he was sick, though no one knew just how preciously short his time turned out to be. 
but I'll forever live with the regret that I didn't try harder to see him in December because he died two weeks later. That is now a part of my grief, and I have to hold that. I have to hold that I can't do anything to change that. But I can be more serious about time moving forward. It's actually interesting now that I think about it. After I found out my Uncle Jerry died thinking that I hated him, I vowed to never let another person think I hated them again. <laughs> Which seems silly now at my age, but but back then, you know, I was a snarky <laughs> teenager in New York. You know, I was I was sassy. And <laughs> it was sometimes it did feel like an important thing to clarify. <laughs> Um, and so at that at that time, I vowed to be clearer in my relationships with people, especially where there was conflict, to let them know that love persisted even if other things were present too. So with Bruce, I feel like I should have known better. But I can't beat myself up for not knowing what I couldn't have known, which was how quickly things would turn for him. And I can't even beat myself up for knowing what I did know and not doing enough with it. Beating myself up about it doesn't do any any good. I can hold the regret. I can hold the pain of it. I can say that I wished for something different. But I can't harm myself about it. Emotionally, mentally. Because that still doesn't do anything effective. It doesn't, it doesn't reverse time. It doesn't give me that opportunity again. It just breaks me down. You know, I, I don't want to live a life where I'm anxious about these things, where I'm constantly thinking, well, I have to say this to this person because what if they die, right? That's not necessarily the vibe that I'm going for, right? But I can be more mindful to make the phone calls, to say the I love yous, to do my best, to know my risks before I make a decision. And that's the best way to sort of make meaning of this situation is to to try better, to think about things a little bit differently, but also not beat myself up about it. And I'll tell you, the revival of this podcast and the creation of a new podcast that I'm working on coming soon, it's in honor of Bruce. The reason we're back here having these conversations, the reason I revived this, I mean, I'm always thinking about bringing this podcast back, but I get in my way a lot. <laughs> I get in my own way quite frequently when it comes to these sorts of things. The reason that I'm back is because of Bruce. It's me remembering how valuable it is for me, as much as it might be for some of you, for me to get on here and share these perspectives, to use my voice, the tool that Bruce and Ed Ingalls, another WRHU mentor, who I've actually done a whole episode on previously, my voice is the tool that they taught me how best to use. And that's beautiful because, one, the, the reflection that's coming up for me now is these are two men Older men who, in so many situations, women can find themselves in relationships with men who are trying to silence them. And these two men were saying, no, that voice in there, in you, in your body, in, in your core, where you express from, where you emote from, where you exist, where you're alive, use it. It's the best power you have. Use it. This is me making meaning of these losses. The two podcasts that I mentioned before are Unlocking Us, 
with Brene Brown. She did a, a an episode on grief and finding meaning with David Kessler. And the other is All There Is with Anderson Cooper. And that episode is called Grateful for Grief with Stephen Colbert, who has some really beautiful insights on grief. Both of them, Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert, have experienced some really tremendous losses in their life. And they speak about it really poignantly in that episode. And both of those episodes address grief with some kind of gratitude. That if you allow yourself to be transformed by it, you can honor the loss as much as find some gain in it. Now, this isn't to say people die for you so that you may become better. It's not a tale of the martyr and the guilt left in your lap to make something of their ultimate sacrifice. But if we're going to lose people anyway, and we have to confront our own death in the process, why not give it room to be meaningful? Nietzsche said, to live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. Apart from finding meaning, I'd say the biggest help in grief is ritual and community. I know when Bruce died, talking to people who didn't know him felt really unfulfilling. I tried to paint the picture of who he was and what he meant to me, but the words always felt like they were falling flat. In contrast, when WRHU, my college radio station, did a live tribute show to him last weekend, and I was able to call in and talk to some old friends on air about him, I felt a sense of peace. Perhaps it was because they knew Bruce. But perhaps it was because they know grief in this moment the way I know grief in this moment. But even with that, grief may always feel a little bit lonely. Because even when people can share some thread of empathy or shared experience, your specific grief, how it lives in you and awakens all of the rest, is uniquely intimate. I have found that Megan Devine, who runs refugeingrief.com, has a lot to say on this topic and validates that loneliness in really profound ways. So if you're needing that resource, I would visit that website. With gratitude, I was able to watch Bruce's service on a live stream from California, which seems like such a strange thing to do. (laughs) But I guess in this COVID-based technological world, we're supposed to think that sort of thing is normal. Uh, but, I, but I'm grateful that I got the chance. And this is a nod to ritual, how we convene together, often in religious contexts, but it doesn't have to be, to complete a ceremony that allows us to put into some kind of action the feelings that we hold. Ritual is so important in grief, regardless of its religious meaning. It's more about what it means to each individual how they feel they're expressing themselves, paying tribute, honoring, enacting symbolic gestures that connect them to who is lost. It's really important. It was really lovely to hear from Bruce's children and wife at the service as they spoke of their love for him, the beautiful nuances of their relationship, and how loved and supported he made them feel. While I was listening, I imagined how hard it must have been for his children to have a father that was so well-loved by so many people who are almost in mass saying similar things about how loved and supported he made us feel too. I wondered what it would be like to be his daughter and hear so many people speak as his surrogate children. I held that tenderness in my heart as I heard their words, knowing how immense his loss is for me and how much that must be multiplied for them. 
the most moving piece of the service for me was when they played the Avett Brothers song, No Hard Feelings, a song that I know well and have wept to many, many times before, a song written to confront one's own fear of death, the unknown, the surrendering, the curious quest for peace on the way out. Again, I found myself weeping along to the song, now with a profound and direct connection to someone so near and dear to me who will always be woven into the fabric of who I am, no matter how I evolve from here. These lyrics now hold new, expanded meaning for me. When my body won't hold me anymore, and it finally lets me free, where will I go? Will the trade winds take me south, through Georgia grain, or tropical rain, or snow from the heavens? Will I join with the ocean blue, or run into a savior true, and shake hands laughing, and walk through the night, straight to the light, holding the love I've known in my life and no hard feelings. Of course, I thought to myself, singing through tears from the comfort of my own bedroom as I watched Bruce's service from 3,000 miles away. Of course, Bruce would want us to hear this song in his memory. For a man always giving us the best, most heartfelt advice, this was his last offering. And nothing would have made more sense to me. It was through ritual and community that I was able to have that final connection with Bruce. Wrapping up the end of something before the beginning of something new takes place. Because I know Bruce will always be here in spirit. I know his legacy will live on through me and through hundreds of other students and other people that knew him. I mean, I think anybody that knew him was inspired by him in some way. Careers were built because he inspired. Families were built because he inspired. Art has been created because he inspired. And I now have some clarity on how to make meaning of his loss. And this episode was one of the first ways that I'm doing that. So... I do hope that this was helpful. Thanks for listening. And uh, stay tuned for more episodes this season on the Feed the Feminine podcast. I'm also introducing some mini-sodes in between full-length episodes. So follow along at Feed the Feminine on Instagram or visit thehungryfeminine.com for past episodes. Until next time.